Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com and Information Security Media Group. On Wednesday, August 25, 2010, Deputy Defense Secretary William Lynn held a press briefing on an article he wrote for Foreign Affairs magazine that covered two topics. First, Lynn wrote about a 2008 incursion in which a foreign intelligence service gained access to a classified military network through the insertion of a flash drive into a laptop on a military post in the Middle East. Second, Lynn addressed a five-point cybersecurity strategy the Defense Department is implementing. Here's Secretary Lynn. Two purposes in the article. The, the, the writing I've seen on it so far is focused heavily on the first purpose, which was to highlight the, the growth of the threat, the expansion both in numbers and in, in sophistication, and we used the, the buckshot Yankee uh, operation, the declassification of that intrusion to highlight that, and um, I think that people have, have picked up on that. The part that I, I, I'd like to highlight in, in my remarks, though, that has been uh, less noticed and I think is equally important is the strategy that we're uh, developing to respond to the series of threats that we see. And it, it's, it, it's, it's in the article, although I'm going to lay it out a little bit differently a little, uh, than, than it came out in the Foreign Affairs article. And the, the strategy has five pillars. The first pillar of the strategy, uh, and this is a defense strategy for cybersecurity, the first pillar is to recognize uh, cyberspace as a new domain of warfare. Land, sea, air, and space are the existing domains. Uh, cyberspace is man-made man unlike the others, but is, is equally important. And one of the important things that that has led us to do as a strategic response is to organize differently, and that is what led Secretary Gates uh, last spring to establish the, uh, the Cyber Command, which will go to full operational capability in, over the next uh, couple of months. The second pillar of the strategy is that we need to extend our defensive posture beyond hygiene, uh, just basic good hygiene and, and uh, perimeter defenses like intrusion detectors, that we need uh, a, a sophisticated and an active uh, defense, and that we need to be able to respond to attacks, to intrusions at network speed, and that, that uh, that's an important capability it, it, it uh, utilizes NSA, National Security Agency's capabilities and intelligence to be able to defend our military networks, and that was uh, an important uh, introduction, uh, a new, new change in the strategy that's been uh, introduced over the last couple of years. The third pillar of the strategy is that we have to extend our protections to critical infrastructure. We cannot just rely on the protecting the dot mill world. The, the military networks do not uh, exist in a in a vacuum. We depend heavily on commercial networks for logistics, for transportation, for power, and so that just in pure military terms, uh, we need critical infrastructure protected. And the nation, and more broadly, the national economy, national security requires protection for those critical infrastructure areas. Now, in, in this area, I need to be clear, the lead agency for the, uh, the government is the Department of Homeland Security, and DOD is in, the, is in a, a supporting role, providing technical capabilities uh, and the, un, under the, uh, the leadership of the Department of Homeland Security. 
The fourth pillar of our strategy is that we, uh, we need to pursue collective cyber defenses internationally. That there's a, a very strong logic to utilizing collective defenses. It's clear you're more effective in the cyber world the more threaded signatures that you understand and share. And so the Cold War concept of shared warning here really applies. And uh, in my role as Deputy Secretary, I have been, uh, over the past few months, traveling the U.K., Canada, Australia, trying to build on the relationships we have there to expand our cyber cooperation, be going to NATO in the, in the next uh, month as they develop uh, the new strategic concept that NATO has where cybersecurity is playing an important role. And so the, this concept of shared warning is that fourth pillar. The final pillar is that we need to maintain and leverage U.S. technological dominance. We clearly have the most sophisticated IT industry in the world. We need to be able to not only protect that, but utilize that to defend our, our uh, network uh, infrastructure. That's led, and I lay out in the article, that means that we need uh, to focus on a, a cadre of cyber professionals, but that we need not only to have the trained professionals, but we need to be able to multiply their talents through uh, techniques like artificial intelligence. And within DOD itself, we need to adapt our acquisition process to the IT world. It is, uh, our, our acquisition process does not have the agility and the speed that it needs to keep up with the technological pace of, of IT. So those are the five pillars. We'll be developing those in a formal strategy document over the course of the fall. I think it'll be issued before the, uh, the end of the year. Uh, we're reflecting our judgment that we really think the front lines of national security have been redefined. Any major conflict that we see going forward is going to have some element of cyber warfare, and we need to make sure we've, we've prepared and developed our military capabilities uh, to uh, sustain that. And with those comments, I think I'd turn it to Brian to run through the questions. No, I hear you might have to leave us, so let's start with you if you're out there. Awesome. Um, I think I've got to ask about this, uh, about the Operation Buckshot Yankee. Uh, I've talked to lots of folks uh, that dealt with Buckshot Yankee who said they never were able to determine who was actually behind it. So have you gotten some kind of new information that ties it definitively to a foreign intelligence service, and uh, if so, which I mean, I, I, the, I, obviously, in the article, it, I said and, and stand by that it, it is tied to a foreign in, intelligence service. Uh, I'm not going to go into any further detail on the forensics that we've we've done in terms of uh, where the intrusion came or or, or how it uh, how it occurred beyond what I said in the article. From the perspective of policy, the important thing here is that it did occur; that those capabilities do exist and we suffered an intrusion, and we need to have a strategy to respond to that. Right, but, I mean, what foreign intelligence service would would launch a foreign flight years old and can't exfiltrate data from a classified network? We, I only caught every third word in that. Uh, uh, I'm saying, I mean, it seems an awfully odd foreign intelligence op when um, Agent BTC is really, you know, it's a, it's a pretty old worm that isn't really particularly damaged. I mean, it, it isn't the most capable threat, but that I agree with that. But that kind of makes the point that if, if you had 
something of, of the kind of capability that you've described and we suffered a compromise as a result of it, it clearly means we need to have a new strategic approach, and that's what we started a couple of years ago, and I've tried to lay out where we're going and uh, going forward. And Laura Rosen, if you're there. Yeah, um, Deputy Secretary, would you speak at all to the, I guess it was the Post report on your piece in Foreign Affairs I'm just looking at now. Um, I mean, did you determine if, if it was the Russian um, intelligence service that was behind the attack you described in the piece? I'm not going to get into the the specifics of of who did it and and why they might have done it. It's as I said, the, the the important policy implication here is that it was done, that uh, there was a a compromise, and we need a a set of defenses that will prevent that going forward. Thanks, uh, Bob Bruin. You there? Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to ask about insider threats, which covers everything from uh, someone uh, sticking a uh, flash drive into a computer to uh, maybe PFCs uh, downloading 76,000 documents. Uh, How serious, sir, do you think uh, insider threats are, and uh, what are you going to do about it? Insider threats, it's not just in the cyber area. I mean, you're always worried about, insider threats in terms of, of either espionage or, or compromising capabilities, and cyber is is no different. Well, cyber is different, I guess, in, in one sense. It's, this is le- not the path you were going down, but there's a different type of insider threat, which is a supply chain threat, is that if, if you, the hardware itself is compromised rather than just an attack over the network, that's a, that's a different vector of attack, and that's something that we need to be uh, equally worried about, and in many ways is is a, a more complex and difficult problem. Eric Chabra, did you join us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Secretary, can you address the issue of the inability to prevent all intrusions, and therefore what needs to be done is to somehow do a better job protecting the data itself? I'm not sure where you're going with it. I mean, I mean, on the network itself, to be able to prevent the data itself somehow from being uh, exfiltrated or something, is that where you're going? I'm not saying that the military should accept the fact that there's going to be intrusions, but intrusions do happen and are probably will continue to happen. So a line of defense is that even if, they, if someone could get into the system, they can't uh, and even access the data. They, they, they won't be able to really understand the data. There's a couple of things on that. I mean, I think you're – one, I think – you have and we have to and we're trying to develop a, very much a layered defense that no one thing is going to work perfectly. And, I mean, I talked about, you know, the computer hygiene as well as intrusion de- as detection as well as uh, uh, active defenses. I think you're right. I'd, you know, adding to that, in, encrypting uh, data is an important element. I, I'd also add it's really part of active defenses, but, you need to be able to hunt on the network for people who've already uh, intruded. Uh, so that that's that's a piece of that. A, a separate line, and I don't know whether it's where you're going, uh, but it, it it's implied by it, is that we also need to develop and train the military to act in a degraded uh, information environment so that you, you don't have everybody assuming they're going to have all of the systems they have at every time. You know, things can be compromised, things can be brought down, 
and just just like any other military capability, and that we are flexible and agile enough to still be able to operate in that degraded environment. And let's go to Robert Haddock. Yeah, Special Secretary, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the need for a uh, what you say is a new strategic approach and um, sophisticated and active defense. Now, does that? Uh, what are, I'm trying to figure out what the um, elements of that uh, new strategic approach are going to be. Is it um, is it just is it all uh, defensive measures? Are, has the department completely? written off, abandoned the idea of uh, deterrence, retaliation, uh, and any of those measures? Uh, I think it's two separate questions in there. I, I mean, one, you're asking kind of what's involved in, in active defense. I guess a, an example I'd give you is that if, uh, it goes to the earlier question a bit too, if an, intrus an intruder uh, succeeds in getting past your uh, your defenses and gets on your network, in, in many cases that malware has to call home in some way. And there are ways in active defenses of blocking that call. So that, that, that's, that's the kind of thing. But you need to be able to do that at network speed. Uh, so that would be uh, one, uh, one you know, technique that you'd, you'd use in, uh, in active uh, defense. To your question on deterrence, I think that deterrence can be an important element of this, but I think that to the uh, the point that at, when people talked about it at the beginning of the questions, attribution here is very, very difficult. And even when you can do it, it takes you a, a long time. And that means that the, the kind of the Cold War paradigm of, of retaliation that you talked about probably doesn't apply here as well, and you're probably looking more at models of deterrence where you have denial of benefit, that you deny you deny the adversary the benefit of an attack rather than retaliate against them after the attack. There's always a mix of those two things, but I think the mix is probably in the cyber world more heavily weighted towards denial of benefit than retaliation. Uh, Mark Ambinder. Do you envision um, needing or seeking any additional um, legal authorities or asking Congress to clarify any existing either Title 10 or Title 50 authorities um, with regard to this particular initiative? With regard, with regard to what was in the article, probably not. But we're, I mean, we're developing, we're still, as I said, we're developing the strategy document, the formal strategy document over the course of the fall, and part of that review will be a legal review as to whether we think uh, we should be asking Congress for more statutory uh, authority. So, we're not in the position of having asked them yet, but we're uh, we're undertaking a review to see if if we think that uh, that we need to. William Jackson, are you there? On your third pillar, you mentioned that you have to extend uh, protection into the critical infrastructure. That uh, dot mill isn't in a vacuum. At the same time, you said that basically is the job of DHS. How far? Is DOD and, and the NSA willing to go to extend that protection into .com or .gov? Well, I think you answered your own question. I mean, the call there is is Homeland Security. I think it's their lead. Uh, NSA has some important capabilities, but how we how we would use them and and how we interact in the in the .gov and .com world, we would follow the Homeland Security lead. Uh, how about Spencer? 
speaking to that, that, that same question we're talking about, did, did Agent BPZ actually result in the removal of any information from the network? Because uh, some of the reporting that we've done at Wired suggests that uh, this was more of a, of a hypothetical threat rather than an actual one. And similarly, in the article, could you define what you mean by automated defenses? Uh, well, the, the, the second question, I kind of answered it with the uh, the network speed comment, and that we need to be able to to uh, do things like like block calls out from malware. We have to do that in an automated uh, way. In other words, you have to know what the the malware is going in, and so when you see it, you block it. Um, I'm sorry. The first question. The first question was, did the agent BTV virus actually result in the removal of information from DOD networks, or did it alert you just to the problem that, that such an attack could create that vulnerability? I'm not, I'm not really going to – I'm going to answer yes to the second question. It alerted us to the possibility because it, it got as far as getting on the, uh, the, uh, the classified networks uh, – how we dealt with it, what happened after that is, is I'm not willing to go further. Yeah, so I'd like to get around two here real quick. Bob Bruin. Sir, uh, two quick questions. Uh, number one, uh, did the uh, flash drive get stuck into a cipernet? Uh, number two, on uh, active defenses, uh, what role is Cybercom going to play and what role is BISA going to play? I mean, the cl- classified networks, uh, obviously means the cipernet, so yes. Um, in terms of the, the cyber command, it, it's the, the cyber command is, has the, the military responsibility for defending our, our military network, so that will be the role that they, uh, that they'll be playing, and that they will utilize NSA capabilities. That's the reason we've co-located them. Eric, if you've got a second one. Can you provide us with your definition of cyber war? And what I'm asking is, does that have to be some kinetic involvement to have cyber war, or could there be war waged just virtually? I don't think I used the term cyber war in the article. I think that the one of the challenges in the cyber world is to identify thresholds, what constitutes uh, espionage, what raises above espionage to intrusions, what goes beyond that, uh, what you think of as some sort of uh, classic uh, hostile attack and and what you're calling a war. And I I think we're still working through where those thresholds are, that this this is an area that, I mean, people use the the Cold War example. This is far less clear, of course, than, than nuclear. And so one of the challenges in this area, in the policy world, is, is understanding uh, and identifying and being precise about those thresholds. Let's go back to Robert Hyatt. Hi. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, is the uh, cyber uh, strategy document that you discussed that your team is working on and will put out uh, at, at some point in the future, will that document uh, discuss uh, U.S. Uh, offensive cyber operations that uh, could be used in support of general U.S. military operations, and uh, do you believe that such a discussion could be a helpful part of um, constructing um, a uh, cyber deterrence doctrine? I, mean, I think the document, at least at a classified level, will be comprehensive. 
Um, but it's it's very difficult to go into any detail uh, in those areas in an unclassified world. Spencer. Thanks. Could you be a little more specific about what you mean by a denial of benefit and where retaliation actually comes in? Because that's perhaps uh, it is a Cold War paradigm, but denial of benefit seems like a, a rather passive defense. No, I mean denial of benefit comes in the cold, in the Cold War model. It comes up too. I mean it's a whole anti-ballistic missile debate. In other words, you, you, you deny in a in the Cold War context if you can shoot the missile down before it gets there, you deny the benefit of the attack. The you know at least in the you know 60s, 70s through the 80s, the classic model though is mutually assured destruction. That that's clearly an entirely retaliatory model. Uh, and obviously, as we so develop, in, so what do you mean in this case? Well, no. I, I, well, let me take it further. As we develop defenses, we have shifted the the nuclear more into denial of benefit than it was. I'm saying the cyber world starts much more in a denial of benefit. In other words, you have to be able to parry the attack rather than to be able to retaliate against it. It doesn't mean that retaliation is never. A, a, an option. It just means I think because of the attribution problem, it may be less accessible to you. And also, we're in a world where we're increasingly facing, you know, terrorist organizations and and groups that don't really have any assets to retaliate against. So, in that, it, with those kinds of groups, you know, denial of benefit really has to be your principal avenue. Uh, yes, sir. Earlier this month, uh, General Lynn said that uh, the Air Force has a real problem with the enemy getting through firewalls and banging away at our applications, and uh, did a test of uh, 200 apps and over 50 had vulnerabilities. Would you like to follow up on that and how you defend the apps beyond the firewall? No, I, th I think not. <laughs> Why not? Because of a classification, or you don't have any ideas on it? You probably have ideas on it. Yeah, I just don't think I can can give you uh, an answer that's going to go into the specifics you want without without getting classified. Mark Ambiner? Um, let me just ask you a general question about um, whether, sir, you believe that in the past discussions of cyber capabilities or indeed of the issue itself has been overclassified, which raises skepticism among the general public and turns any sort of action um, by the U.S. military into something more nefarious than it actually is. How are you going to balance uh, the need for operational security on the one hand versus um, uh, not simply the, you know, but versus the, uh, the prerogatives of, of um, uh, of the fact that a lot of this, you know, material information is already widely distributed. I mean, hackers have a sense of what the U.S. government can do. Certainly, foreign governments believe that the U.S. has the same capabilities that they do. Um, so, just if you can talk a little bit about the need to talk about this openly, particularly if in the future there will be new changes to laws versus uh, the classification issues that are that are you know endemic to what some of what you're doing. I mean, I think I agree with the premise of your question. I'm not sure I agree with the, the specific. I, I think the, the premise of your question is that we need to talk about this more 
and to have a broader national debate, a broader policy debate on cybersecurity, and I, I agree with that. I, I attribute it less to overclassification than to just the newness of the area. That the, you know that the, this is you know only you know 10 to 20 years old in, in terms of most of what we're talking about, and people just haven't worked through a, a lot of the things that we uh, that we need to work through. And, I obviously declassified Buckshot Yankee to, to try and have people have a little bit better uh, understanding of the threat, but that wasn't really a reflection. I thought, oh, geez, we have all this overclassification. It's that I, I think people don't have a, as broad an understanding uh, of what can be done in the in the cyber areas as we need to, and I, and I but I think that's that's changing, and I think we do need to work our way through in the things like it was in the earlier question about, you know, what is the threshold for an attack or the threshold, uh, you know, you know when does it reach the same threshold as a kinetic attack on the United States? Those are all important policy questions. They're difficult questions, and I, I think a, a, a broad debate uh, both in the policy arena and the public arena will be beneficial to developing the right set of responses uh, by the government and by the private sector. Spencer, you want to take the last one? Given that you solved the attribution problem with the intelligence agency that you didn't name, can you say if there were any active retaliations that you engaged in after Agent BTZ? I, I mean, I know you guys want me to talk more about this than I have, but I'm going to have to keep keep resisting the the the. The reason to, to talk about that was to highlight the policy uh, responses that we've we've taken to it, and that's uh, what we've what we've done in the article. So you can't say if you took any measures to retaliate against this intelligence agency or its parent government. That's correct. Hey, folks! Again, I want to thank you for your time. Look forward to reading you on the blogosphere. Thank you very much. <laughs>